right okay so that's pretty much the way i want this thing to go are we ready to start Howdy and welcome to this episode of The Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like. This is a series of conversations with artists, singer-songwriters about their current projects and industry people about the current trends. The program is hosted and produced by myself, Bruce Swan. The podcast will endeavor to be a bridge between the weekly live concert series to the weekly radio show. While unaffiliated, they are connected with the sharing of the same name, music my mother would not like. You can find more information about the weekly series and the radio programs at the website musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. The radio show can be heard live on WSFM LP 103.3 FM, Asheville, North Carolina. It can also be heard live on AshevilleFM.org. The programs are archived on the website, and the program airs on Mondays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. The weekly music series with the same name can be heard and seen on Zoom and Facebook. You can get more information about the programming on the website and on the Facebook page with the same name. Registration for the series is always free and encouraged. It's a donation-based event, and this is how we pay the artists. The podcast will vary in length. Many of the episodes will come from interviews conducted live in the radio studios or via telephone and now via Zoom. Nothing is ever taken out of context and may be updated if it's possible and appropriate. The opinions expressed will be those of the speakers and not necessarily of any radio stations that I have been lucky enough to be affiliated with over the years, its owners, staff, or boards of directors. And you can support this project directly through the website's PayPal account. In time, there will be a Patreon account, and we'll have the heads up on articles, interviews, etc., but it's one step at a time. If you're digging what you're listening to, please tell a friend. And if you'd like to support the show and like to let let me know about a shout out, I'm happy to do so. Do so in the PayPal comments. And please remember to indicate that you're sending the donation as a gift to a friend. It helps us a lot. In the comments, let me know where you're listening from. I won't use your last names unless you say it's okay. And any little bit helps. If I've learned anything from my years in community radio, it is that lots of big things will get done when many hands help and chip in a little. Think about the cost of a cup of coffee at your local favorite spot. Maybe you're listening there right now while you're sipping away. I'm glad to be with you and keeping company wherever you are and whatever you're doing. And a big thanks to the sponsors of the programming at Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like. We are currently enjoying the benefits of being connected and sponsored by hereitthere.com and undiscoveredmusic.net.
Welcome to this episode of the podcast series that will endeavor to tie in the work I do on radio with the weekly concert series that I host on Zoom and Facebook. I've always enjoyed the backstories in music, the tidbits of information that you find when you're afforded an opportunity to dig in with a singer-songwriter about their influences, their interests, and even some of their heroes. Luck is the perfect intersection between opportunity and preparation, or as my uncle would have said, chance tends to favor the prepared. Either way you look at it, the announcement of the upcoming and limited edition of the new Rod Picot album, which would present the co-writes of Rod Picot and Slade Cleaves, got my interview wheels spinning. The new record will be the re-recording of the 25 songs that they have co-written over the years. Co-writing for these two is not done the traditional way as many other artists. For Rod and Slade, it's done out of a necessity to help fix or repair a song that's just not working out. Maybe it needs a line sorted out or eliminated. Sometimes it's in the mechanics of the song or the music. That's what they call a co-write. It would mean a material change in the song that made it right. Not just an edit, but a material change in the song. The album also includes one bonus track and a compendium with thoughts on each track, credits, and a declaration to his late mother, whom I believe probably liked his music very much. As I said earlier, luck is the intersection of opportunity and preparation. I've had the opportunity to interview each of these heroes of mine on separate occasions. I've seen them play live. Their music is always with me at every time I sit in a radio station. It's not to suggest that I play every one of their songs or any of their songs every time I'm on the air, but they are solid go-to albums and they're always at the ready. I'm not aware of any recent interviews that the two have conducted together, so this will be a special moment for me. Let me paint the picture for you. Because of COVID and the physical distances for all of us, Rod is in his home in Nashville and Slade in Austin, and me in Nashville where we are able to connect via Zoom. The conversation was recorded in one take. It ran the gamut of topics of, about songwriting and about the record. Each of these two men have known each other since childhood, remained friends and colleagues for many years. It takes little time to see this, the differences and the similarities between the two, and I'm hopeful that the conversation will present their ardent respect and affections for one another. This is the conversation that I had with Rod Picot and Slade Cleaves about Rod's new album, Wood, Steel, Dust, and Dreams. We joined this conversation already in progress. And, and if you add the challenges of um, time, distance, personal backgrounds, um, professional similarities and differences, and finally a scuffle of competitiveness, well, <laughs> any one of these qualities would strain a friendship. But, and put any of the others, it might topple that relationship. I think the combination of these has seemed to be a cement for the friendship and respect and love that these two distinguished musicians, singer-songwriters, have for one another. And it's a real honor at this time to, I believe, be the only person that will have the interview of both of you with respect to this, um, this, this project. Uh, so That's true. That's, it's, it's, I'm really, really flattered. We'll try to delve into some of the frequencies uh, over time that this has happened, your, your ability to co-write and assist one another from perhaps stumbling blocks that required assistance. We welcome Rod Picot from Nashville, Tennessee, and Slade Cleves from Austin, Texas. And I really feel, I feel like the little kid at the, at the dinner table, you know, finally getting to step up to the grown-ups table, finally being cool <laughs> enough to hang with the big guys. But um, let's get to it. Hey, Rod, let's talk a little bit about why 
the album came together, these 25 songs, some on each of your records and some on only one of your records. And we'll get to the five songs a little bit later in the end. But why the limited run? Why the decision to limit this to a finite number? Uh, that was a real utilitarian decision. I mean, the you know, music industry is kind of devouring itself. And, and uh, with all the streaming, which... Um, you know, everybody does now. They do it because it works. It works great. You know, these people have created these platforms that are really effective. Uh, but it's taking money right out of musicians' wallets. And uh, so I just thought, you know, I'm not going to do any streaming with this record. I'm going to try to make it special. I'm thinking of it as kind of a um, sort of like limited edition prints, you know, like folk art prints. Mm -hmm. You know, each one will be signed and numbered. And I just wanted to have a kind of direct relationship with with my small audience. Um, they're really loyal, and uh, I just wanted to go direct to them and let them know that if they wanted it, <laughs> they had to come to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they want to hear it, they got to got to get it from me. And uh, so I thought, you know, uh, I took a look at the numbers of what I've been selling over the last few years, and kind of came up with a rough number, and that I had to sort of adjust because you know the manuf manufacturing. You know, it's the the levels of, of manufacturing and the and the quantities are are uh, the jumps are steep. You know, so it's like it costs you you know fifty dollars more to print a thousand. So sure. Uh, so I had you know once I went past you know five hundred people, um, I had to jump up to the next level. There wasn't there was there was no in between. So so that's why. Well, are there copies left, and can people still get them through the website? And I guess when they're, as you said, when they're done, they're done. That, that that's, that's yeah. It. Well, this is this is you know I'm kind of kind of negotiating that with my publicist. You know, he's uh, he wants to do it a slightly different way. But uh, you know, I said it was a limited run, and each one would be numbered, and you had to pre-order it. And once they were gone, they were gone. And uh, you know, I'm sticking to that. So today is the very last day of the sales. Well. Uh, yeah, because they're supposed to ship today. So, uh, you know, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful so many people got on board. I didn't expect, I wasn't watching the numbers. And, you know, when it went past 300 and then past 400, I thought, wow. Oops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not quite as limited as I expected, but still limited, you know. <laughs> but once well, they're gone, they'll be gone forever. You know, like the live album that I did. It's kind of it's a fun, fun way to think of it. You know, it's uh, you got to get in early, and that's the only way to get it. Well, is there is this a long shot? But is there any possibilities or hope or dreams of maybe going to vinyl with the project? Because I think it would lend itself. I mean, just putting it out there. Um, you heard it here first. I think it would just lend itself beautifully to a nice vinyl project and a nice double album. <laughs> It would, but it's uh, vinyl is incredibly expensive, and I, for, so, for so strange reason, I don't know how Slade Slade will have an answer for this for himself, but uh, my audience in the states does not buy vinyl. Uh, hmm. uh, I think they're an older audience, and they've gotten used to CDs. They still buy CDs at at shows, uh, not through the website as much anymore, uh, but they do buy them at shows. But um, the Europeans will buy the vinyl. Uh, but then you got to ship them over there. <laughs> you right. got to bring them. You got to bring them with you. You got to bring a hundred and eighty pound suitcase full of vinyl. You know, so I probably won't be doing vinyl with this project. Yeah, that's that certainly is a, a serious consideration. And you've brought in a couple of people on the record. I know Slade's got a cameo on on one of the songs, he but does. you brought He's... in um, Nelson Hubbard and Will Kimbrough and Lex Price as well. 
Yeah, yeah, and Matt Mach on uh, on Dobro and, and slide guitar, national guitar. You know, I just wanted to. These are all songs that have been released before, of course. So, you know, it's for the hardcore fans. I mean, you, they already know these songs and they've heard them. And you know, with the various records that Slade and I have put released them on, they've heard really good versions. I mean, Slade's records sound absolutely beautiful. So um, that was intimidating to step up to those songs, you know, and and take a swing at them. because he'd already done them and done them beautifully. So, you know, um, but I, you know, I brought in different people to kind of add different dimensions and mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's not really a band record, but there's a little bit, you know, here and there and some harmonies and a little bit of percussion. And um, it felt like the middle ground, you know, sort I didn't like want the- to do another 26 songs with just me and the guitar and put <laughs> anybody to sleep. So <laughs> I had to bring some ringers in. Well, it's a bit of a garnish, perhaps, on the on the songs. Uh, yeah, there you go. Garnish. So, so Slade, some of the co-writes appear on your records. Any thoughts of adding some of these that have not yet made it to your projects? Is there any conversation or thought about maybe putting them on a subsequent record? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of songs that I've in this group that I've never recorded. And so, obviously, next time I go to make a collection, I'll, I'll take a look at them. And I think that uh, uh, you're not missing anything. I think I may be... I think I did that on a radio show, and uh, it was part of a, you know, a, a public radio giveaway mm-hmm. compilation or something. But I've, I've never really right. recorded it myself. I, I almost forgot about it. But um, yeah, you know, when I'm when I'm making a record, typically, you know, I'm always scrounging around to find whatever fits onto the album and whatever I can find through the archives or through my notes, and you know, so. Uh, I'll definitely look at that. And I can't wait to hear the new one that we wrote this this summer. We put uh, a new record. Did that, that song make the record, Rod? It did. It came uh, out beautifully. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to hear yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Um, and this really goes out to both of you. Um, after meeting up as kids on the school bus and friendship grows over time, the idea of maybe getting a band together manifests itself. Did either of you imagine that the band would maybe go to singer-songwriter, and would that have then been considered a promotion or demotion? Was the was the singer-songwriter the the escalated uh, uh, of the band, or or less than? Was it a sign of you know can't keep the guys together, but I still want to go out on my own? You go first, Slade. Right? Well, uh, the dream always started with a band situation. I mean, when Rod sort of recruited me out of my nerddom in high school to join his band, <laughs> his project. Uh, it was a thrill to play with your buddies in a garage and make that glorious noise. And so the band uh, modality seemed to be the way to go. And after our high school band broke up, I got into cover bands and played and, and original bands in college. And it was only... Um, it was only by default, I think, when I moved to Texas and I didn't have my band with me and I I entered a songwriting contest at a folk festival that I became a folk musician or a singer-songwriter, I thought, I think, just because I lost my band. And so when we were young, I don't think we ever considered being singer-songwriters at all. It just wasn't in the wasn't in our minds, I don't think. What about you, Rod? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, no, when we, uh, when I was a kid, uh, it was always about being in a band. And I think that we both had um, a kind of aesthetic that drew us to bands that had a great songwriter, you know, or a, a great singer-songwriter within the band context. So it wasn't a huge leap 
Uh, and for me, you know, Slade had a very successful band up there in Portland, Maine for a few years. And uh, I think, you know, wanted to jump into deeper waters and take a bigger swing at it to go, go down to, you know, Austin and where there was a, uh, you know, more lively scene and more possibilities. And for me, I had sort of, there was a big separation from that local scene that I grew up in, you know, playing in original bands. We had our, our garage band when we were kids, and uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, we drank a lot of cheap beer and, you know, made a lot of noise and bothered the neighbors. And appropriately, that's what you do when you're 14 years old, playing rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Glorious horribleness of it all. And um, then I had a few bands that uh, were you know solid bands but nothing special and um i think for me it was i really made a break a conscientious break from uh i was playing bass in a band and that's sort of not an instrument that's great for writing songs and so i you know i had to sort of take up guitar again and learn the you know try to figure out what i could do that fit my personality on the acoustic guitar and i um I sort of followed in Slade's footsteps in a way because I had moved to Boulder, Colorado, and I was busking on the street and just kind of trying to relearn, uh, you know, trying to unlearn what I'd learned by being in a band, which is, mm -hmm. you know, you can make a, a great sound that's not really a great song. So I had to sort of unlearn uh, what I had learned being in, you know, sort of post-punk bands in that local scene. And uh, it was real intentional for me. You know, I decided... Um, it just wasn't worth, you know, trying to keep a band together and always being the guy that, you know, was doing all the booking and doing everything and uh, organizing everything. I just thought, I just want, I'll just be a guy with a guitar. And uh, so that's not what the albums are, you know, but, um, but essentially that's what my career has been. Uh, well, I would imagine that the logistics of, of putting a record, a tour, a project, uh, anything together, including, including rehearsal night, is a whole lot simpler you're a singer songwriter <laughs> solo musician then band leader with four or five guys or people that uh, um, do or don't see it the same way absolutely no no no, no doubt about that <laughs> now I, I think I've sort of thought about this a little bit later on in the interview but but it does come up um, your propensity towards bass is that the maybe the unlearned of the uh, being a bass player in a band because you rely heavily many of your songs will open up with with the bass sound, um, you know, that, that heavier, that heavier lower note. You know, that's just, that's just part of, um, you know, I've used this Gibson J45 that I'm not using today, but I've, I've played the same guitar for tw 20 years since I started, you know, playing solo shows and going on the road. And actually most of those solo shows were, were the opening for Slade. Slade was very good to me when, when I first started playing and put the first record out and bringing me out with him before honestly before I was ready before I was ready I, I wasn't very good and I was really nervous I was really uncomfortable on stage and but it takes time for some people and I was one of those people and you know he was generous enough to stick me up there for six songs so I could kind of you know keep moving myself forward um but that that sound that low end is just you know it's just my it's just what I like it's just what I'm drawn to I, I love that big woody bassy sound and uh so i've incorporated that just naturally without thinking about it
your business, firm, company, project, whatever, like to meet other cool people like yourself, maybe you'd like to be a sponsor of the programming. Working with people that think like you or share common interests is the key to getting things done. You can write to me at the website, musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. Well, it's definitely a signature sound, but when, and I think I've got this later on in the song, but, um, you know, your styles of music are, are so much different as, as they are the same. And, um, you know, for example, in some of the songs, Take Home Pay, Primer Gray, Welding Burns, they, they overlap in the narrative, um, and yet they're very different. Slade's perspective is almost a journalistic approach to the characters, with Rod almost an autobiographical approach. And while both of you grew up in the same town, but with different backgrounds, and I think from Rod's notes he talks about the difference between Salisbury steak and uh, farm from the table, or farm to table. But yet in spite of these shared, uh, in spite of these differences, the shared love for music and fixing cars. Um, in Slade's bio, he, he talks about many of the jobs that he's held prior to pledging to a lifetime of music, and yours too, Rod. Your parents' aspirations were for you to be an electrician, you said, in the, rather than a welder in the yards. Can both of you talk a little bit about uh, how choices that you have made over the years have sort of colored your songwriting? You know, for me, it was... Um... It was not really a choice. I mean, I, I got out of high school and I worked at a gas station for a little while and then I got offered a job in, uh, doing construction and I just needed the work, so I took it. And um, I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have a lot of, I would say I had almost no natural musical ability. <laughs> I couldn't sing. It was very, very difficult for me. All the pieces of doing this have been very, very difficult for me. So I stayed in construction for 18 years and in my off time, uh, just kind of kept pushing myself forward and, you know, learning how to write songs and, and uh, learning how I could use my voice, which is, you know, it's not a great sounding voice. Uh, uh, it's a slightly unusual voice. Uh, it's not, not, it's not, you wouldn't call it pretty, you know, uh, <laughs> but it, it can do a certain kind of thing. And, uh, uh, so for me, it was not really a not really a choice. I just it just took me a long time to get to where I was was trying to get to. Uh, but I was working on it all that all that time. Uh, you know, I promised myself when I moved to Nashville that I was going to make a record, but I wasn't going to make a record till I had ten songs that I thought were worth people listening to. Mm -hmm. And I held to that, and it took took me a long time. You know, it took me six seven years. Uh, I was in Nashville before I made my first record, and Slade was already off and running at that at that point. So um, uh, I don't know how how does that work for you, Slade, with the different jobs. You were always kind of working towards it, weren't you? I mean, you were always the music was already already kind of happening, and you were you were more like working just to for for income for to kind of keep yourself going. Is that not true? Yeah, that is true. I mean, I had more opportunities than you did. You know, as as the firstborn son of a middle class family, I was expected to go to parent, uh, college like my parents did, and they, I didn't really want to go to college. I, I wanted to pursue music, but I didn't know how to make a living doing music. So, uh, I think I sort of accepted the default and went to college, and was very lucky that my parents paid for it. And I explored, I explored music and and uh, film, film and uh, creative writing and poetry and things like that that ended up really helping me in my musical career eventually. But I didn't find anything in college that uh, pointed to a career. It, 
making music for a living was a dream that that you inspired as teenagers and when you're when you when you're hit with something like that as a 16 year old it sometimes it, it stays with you for it's a powerful thing you know when you sort of develop that dream as a youngster and 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 sort of talk it through and i remember you and i working at our job at, after school we had a job as janitors we cleaned bathrooms <laughs> six floors of bathrooms in a factory a ge factory and you know it's just like really this uh, for like three dollars an hour or something like mopping floors and cleaning uh, toilets for two hours after school <laughs> and we talk about the glamour we talk about we're going to be in a band. We're going to tour around the country in a band someday. And, yeah. you know, that's a, an intoxicating dream that that uh, I kind of fell into, with, you know, kind of followed Rod into this dream, really, and became partners with him. And so, you know, I was wrecked from then on. My, my poor parents were, you know, despairing that this bright child who was, you know, in the honor society at Marshall <laughs> High School and... On the math team, yes, I was on the math team before Rod and I got the band together. I didn't know I was with Letterman. That's, that's right. And, you know, I just I did whatever odd job I had to just to pay the rent, uh, and uh, of course got a girlfriend with a job. That was a big part of it. My now wife Karen uh, supported me through many lean years, and. Um, you know, it takes it takes a little bit of delusion to pursue a dream like this, and I had just enough delusion, and it takes a huge stroke of luck to uh, to break on to the place where you can make a living doing this, and I got that stroke of luck too, which again, well, you know, it happened uh, mainly because of the song "Broke Down" that Rod shared with me in 1999 and came out in 2000, and just sort of flipped a switch so that I could start making money and stop losing money. So. <laughs> Well, I, I think that if you look at arts, uh, sports, um, acting, music, these are all dreams of lots of young people, but few have either the uh, opportunity, the preparation, or the fortitude to stick with it. You, you think about how many Little League baseball teams are there, how many kids play Little League, how many make it to the high school team, how many make it to the college team, or how many can survive the grind of the bus in the minors to make it to the majors. I mean, there's only 700 people play in the Major League Baseball in any given day. We yeah. talk about millions of people on the planet, millions of people singing in the shower. I mean, it's, it's good for my neighbors that I don't sing in the shower, but Lots of us aspire to be something, but to be able to stick to it and in spite of challenges, uh, both physical, fiscal, um, familial, all these challenges and, and questions as to why what you're doing is the right thing. So, uh, you know, bravo for, for just sticking with it and forget about being good enough to make a living. I think, um, you know, that's, that's it's spot a, on. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you, you both brought it up, but, you know, that level of just making a, making a living playing music, it puts you at like the 97th percentile, <laughs> like just just that. And then there's like between that and stardom or, you know, a really successful career where you go around and play theaters or, you know, that next level. That's the other three percent. And you're all, you know, uh, most musicians do. You know, don't even come close to making making a living with their music. Uh, you know, a lot of them it supplements their their mm -hmm. living, but um, yeah, it's a it's a thing that I have to remind myself of every once in a while because I have a very small audience. Like I said, they're very loyal, but but it is a very small audience, um, uh, and I have to remind myself that 
you know, it's, uh, you know, I, ha I have accomplished uh, a thing that I set out to do, you know. It just took me a little longer, so it's, it's not in my head. <laughs> it's not in my head that I've succeeded at anything. It, just, it took me so long, you know. My boots were worn out by the time I arrived, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. HearItThere.com is an online arts publication that supports the arts and culture of the New York City tri-state area with concentrations in the Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. It is an intelligent, well-written publication with blog columns about music and the arts and can be found on the site HearItThere.com like it sounds H-E-A-R-I-T-T-H-E-R-E.com. Check it out. Consider marketing your upcoming events on HearItThere.com. I do. Well, hey, let's get back to co-writing together over the years. Can you both talk a little bit about the process for you in terms of at what point does a song need some help? At what point is it frustration, resignation, whatever to the process? And, and how do those, those conversations start? Does it just sort of somebody gets an email or someone gets a phone call? What's the, what, what's the, the uh, I guess, the, the metamorphosis of the whole thing? You can go first, Slate. Um. I think it's fun to think about how much it's changed over the years. I mean, the, the very yeah. first couple songs we wrote, it was with, in the in the same room together with two notebooks, and it was like that uh, that scene in Seinfeld where Jerry and George are trying to write their first uh, episode of their TV show. <laughs> right. And they say, "We need something here." <laughs> the blank page, and they're falling asleep, and it's really hard to get started. Um, but we we powered through, and we wrote a, a handful of songs that way. And then when Rod was in Nashville and I was in Austin, we couldn't do that very much anymore. I think we did it once and when Rod came to visit mm -hmm. in Austin. Um, but then it started to be, um, this is before the internet, so it was sending tapes in the mail to each other. Mm. I, I have a handful of tapes, including of uh, Broke Down. I have a, a cassette tape of Broke Down, the early version that Rod sent to me, and a handful of other songs. Uh, and then with the internet, it, it became uh, email and then texting mostly. Um, when one of us has, usually the way it works these days is uh, one of us will have a great idea for a song, he thinks, and, and maybe a couple of verses, but gets stuck and can't figure out what to do with it, and we'll share it with the other. And most of the time, we're able to, to shepherd that song onto another level. Um, another way it works sometimes is, I know that in the past, I've had a song that I've finished, and it's good, it's a solid song, but it's just not great yet, and... Rod has come in and polished up a couple of my mediocre songs and just with just four or five great lines that just elevate them to the place where, okay, I say I can record this song and be proud of it. So, you know, it's happened in many, many different ways over the years. Yeah, I mean, that that's it. I mean, that's, I think Slade, Slade covered it. Um, it, it, it. They come from a lot of different places. Some, and and we share co-writing credit in, the, in a kind of, what I think is kind of a unique way is that we don't really, you know, there are songs that we help each other on that we, we sort of don't give co-writing credit to if it doesn't feel like it's kind of a fundamental, you know, part of the foundation of the song or it doesn't change the song in, in, a, in a fundamental way. We might not give a co-writing credit, but we, we might have, you know, one of us might have helped the other. 
And then there are other songs where, like Slate said, you know, it's just a word or a phrase or just one, just one thing. Well, we were, I'll give you an example. We were working on a song called, it's Take Home Pay, I think, right? And, um, you know, it was really good. We were both really happy with it, but I, I just, I couldn't let it go. I felt like there's one there's there's one element that needs to ha more that needs to happen in this song and that it, it, it needs a bit of desperation and i just kept thinking about like who you know who is this guy who's the character and where's the de desperation then i remember a friend who um when work uh there was a lot of unemployment in nashville at a certain time and and uh, had a buddy that he worked that i worked with and he was selling his plasma you know to just to for groceries, you know, and I said I remember typing just an an email to Slade saying we got to work in a blood bank, and a couple of days later Slade Slade wrote wrote that line sent that line back and it's it's the best line in the song it makes the whole song that line makes the whole song. Yeah, I can always and hit the blood bank on the way home. Yeah, I'm bone dry, but I can hit. The, but yeah, uh, bone dry, but I can always bleed. I'm bone dry, but I can always bleed. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> and I got I got that from life experience myself because uh, one of my more colorful day jobs that I had to support uh, myself and Karen, well, not Karen, but myself, um, uh, was uh, being a paid medical research volunteer. I actually mm -hmm. remember talking to Rod on the payphone at the facility, <laughs> talking about songs and, and bands and stuff. <laughs> You know, I actually took experimental drugs for a living for a while. <laughs> so, so what was that conversation like? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Listen, I got to go get some, some, some stuffed into my arm. I'll be back in a little bit. Yeah. This, this explains so much. This explains so much, Bruce. You don't know. So it's not a suntan. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why I look like uh, Donald Trump here in my thing. I no, think no, no. You look you look. I have been relaxed. outside. I, I bought a wood chipper last week because I've, I've got all these cedars on my property that I need to chip up and... And uh, so I've been out in the sun quite a bit. I guess that's it. Well, for those of you on the radio listening, um, <laughs> you look like you just got off the beach. Yeah. You fell asleep with a pair of sunglasses on. You look like a million bucks. <laughs> and I'd settled to look for half like that. Settled to look uh, half as good. But um, let's do get back to, to the co-writing. There's a bit of vulnerability, I would think, that when you when you put out a product, when you put out a song, um, some some songwriters think of them almost as children, but I, I think that that's... that's a little bit extreme, but I think it's a product. It's a piece of you. It is your heart and soul. And when you put that out there um, to a colleague for for criticism, for adjustment, for I'm stuck on this, um, there is that vulnerability. But you write in the liner notes that it was never really about the competitiveness. While you're both striving to write the best song possible, where do you draw the line? Like where is where is this good criticism? Where is it um, just excessive is it too much and, and does that stop a conversation well i you know for for me i i would say i tend to bring a song to slade maybe a bit quicker than he brings them to me um you know he's a real he's a real craftsman and uh a lot of times the songs that he brings to me are really are very quite finished and um I would say I bring things to him maybe a little a little sooner. Uh, maybe I, maybe I panic when I first get stuck. But um, I'm trying to re re reel it back into your to what your actual question was, uh, which was 
<laughs> well, the question the question really is not only is it is it's a personal oh, competitive things, but but yeah. the vulnerability of of putting out something that is yours and yeah. um, like asking someone to to read your your work after you've written something, it's like what do you think? And your ex- the expectation is they're going to say, oh, this is brilliant, this is marvelous, I you know. Well, for me, the, go. for me, the one thing I one thing I know for sure is as I trust Slade completely, utterly, to tell me what he actually thinks, uh, and you know sometimes to a fault, but that's a beautiful thing about his personality, and it's you know it's what we all have our quirks, you know, but Slade will never tell you something that he doesn't actually think, and so. Uh, you know, so with some of the songs, that's hard. You have to kill your darling sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. You, uh, and um, But I never, ever uh, have ever felt with any of the songs that we've ever written, I never felt like um, either that he was trying to hijack the song or turn it into something it's not or wasn't giving his best to it. Mm-hmm. And what, however he responded is really truly what he thought about it you know and where it was weak and where it was strong and uh, you know that's a powerful thing to have in your back pocket for as a, as a co-writer you know as a co-writer to have somebody really smart that you really trust and so so it's, e- it's easy for me it sounds to me it, it, that it's almost more an edit rather than a fix like you're not bringing something that's busted and said hey can you fix this or maybe you are I don't know it's a huge range, don't you think, Slade? I mean, yeah, yeah, and I, I think um, that's the key is is trust. And because we grew up together and we formed our musical taste together, I think that's one of the reasons we trust yeah. each other so much. Um, we know that they're not gonna, the other isn't gonna take the song in a weird direction that isn't in our wheelhouse, for instance. Um, but also, Rod is is um, as a as kids. I remember being fascinated with Rod's ability to be uh, analytical and uh, critical, not in a negative way, but in a, an analytical way. Mm-hmm. And and that and it took me. Uh, I had to go to college to learn how to think like that. But Rod could think <laughs> like that before college. But I had to be trained to think like that. And it took me a while. But um, even today, when, when we're working on a song and we disagree on something. Rod is really great at explaining why a certain line or certain language isn't right for the song, for instance, because it wouldn't come out of the mouth of the narrator of the song, you know. Sure. And so I, when I write with Rod, I know that, you know, he's getting the best out of me, and hopefully I'm getting the best out of him too. And that's a really good place to be when you're writing with someone. UndiscoveredMusic.net is an online website offering something for music fans, music venues, and musicians. This very special website organizes information as to where you can see your favorite artist. It helps venues draw in viewers, and it helps artists connect with their fans in locations around the country. Traveling to a city? Check out UndiscoveredMusic.net and see which of your favorite artists will be in town with you too. Let me ask you a question, and we're not going to answer it just yet. So I'm going to, I want to put the question out there because it, it may take a little bit to think about, but and we'll re- revisit it in a little bit if, if I remember. Um, are there any songs that either of you have heard from the other? You said, geez, I, I wish I'd written that song. That when it's all done, it's, on the, it's in the can, it's not something you want to cover, but you listen to the song and you say, man, 
I wish I had written that song. So this is sort of a whimsical question and, and um, extension of that. Uh, and let's let's just suppose, sort of kind of crazy because who uses a telephone to talk anymore? But the phone rings and you pick it up. Who who would you like to have on the other end saying, "Hey, listen, can we cover your song for our next record?" Anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone with a record deal. <laughs> How good is the deal? <laughs> matter. Somebody who sells a crap load of records. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. I would have said, you know, y- y- last year I might have, I might have would have said John Prine. I don't know. You know, I, I guess my, my thoughts immediately go to people whose songs I admire, you know, Guy, Guy Clark and, of course, guys, we've lost Guy a few years ago. I don't know, Guy Clark, uh, uh, Steve Earle, I don't mm-hmm. know, Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Bruce would be great because he sells a lot of records still. <laughs> 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 and he plays to big audiences. So you could have both, you know, a sort of critical, uh, you know, a feather in your cap and as well as a financial feather in your back pocket. <laughs> Fat wallet in your back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. When Johnny Cash had his sort of uh, late in life renaissance and was doing a lot of records, a lot of recording, and a lot of covers, that's that's when I was thinking, man, that would be the guy. Wouldn't it be amazing to see, to hear Johnny Cash's voice on one of your songs? I mean, that was the guy at the top of my list always. Hmm. I, I do remember you saying that actually. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. And, and if we sort of take that ex- as an extension, is there someone that you'd love to co-write with one day? Either a song, a record, a jingle, a movie script, anything. I'd be too intimidated to co-write with anyone that I was a big fan of, I think. <laughs> It'd be too stressful for me. Yeah, it would, I mean, uh, that's an interesting question. That makes me think of other kinds of writing, you know, like a screenplay. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Slade is friends with a, this wonderful guy, Brian Koppelman, who's made some wonderful movies and is... His screenplays are so smart. He's the showrunner on uh, that Showtime series, Billions. He's just a really smart, interesting guy. And I've had sort of tangential, you know, he's an acquaintance of mine. He's a friend of Slade's. He's an acquaintance of mine. So I think of Brian Koppelman. I think, oh, that would be really, that would be great to be brought in on some project at some point, you know. Mm. I did send him a screenplay that I wrote a few years ago and, he said his lawyer said he couldn't open it. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> well, I, guess, I mean, I guess that could be true, you know. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like if you made a work tape of all your of a bunch of demos and sent it to Steve Earle, he said, not only would he not be interested in it, but he wouldn't listen to it for fear that it would come back on him later, you know, that mm-hmm. he would, that you, you know, some frivolous lawsuit would come out of it and that is that is part of you know the the music industry it, it does happen uh you know tom petty it happened to tom petty just a few years ago right that happened guy to led zeppelin chorus. big time yeah well they were <laughs> big time. yeah they were just they were just swinging for the fences and taking whatever they wanted yeah. <laughs> a lot of lawyers benefited from that that uh, yeah. that expense, but you know it really does beg the next question mm-hmm. on the list, and that is um, besides your collective songwriting, I've enjoyed the writing that both of you do outside your Rod's collective book of short stories and poems, and 
sorry, but I, I can't wrap my head around poetry in general. So it's not specific to you, but I have a high, it was a, a chapter in, in the poetry section in the Norton's anthology that taught you how to read poetry, you know, try to try to lighten up how you read it and try not to read it as a novel. And I tried all these tricks and I still cannot wrap my head around it. But but I love the short stories and, and Slade's blog on your website. I, I dig reading the stuff, the, the short story about the uh, about the hotel or blogs of events, the things that have happened. And I think, Rod, you did talk a little bit about this, but are there other literature projects that you're working on, and do you guys ever collaborate on, on any of those projects? No, that other kind of writing is a very different discipline. You know, the, the songwriting has a very, um, it has a structure to it, you know, that you can work with and that you can communicate with the other person very, very easily. You know, the chorus is too long, the chorus is too short, let's cut the chorus in half the first time, then do a double chorus at the end, let's put the bridge, where do we put that? These are like building blocks, you know, it's like being on a construction site You're and you're kind of, you can discuss those pieces of it. That's a little bit different than the writing. The writing is a little bit more... Uh, intellectual and instinctive um, simultaneously which is a which is a strange thing to say but it is um, you sort of occupy your monkey brain and you find you find these things that you know you find you've written something that's really great that you don't really know how you wrote it quite um, but the other kinds of writing don't lend themselves to that really um, I would eat you know I would happily send Slade you know my a short story to comment on um, you know he's a very bright guy and he's a, and he's a he's well read uh, so he would have he would have a lot to offer but that kind of writing doesn't lend itself to to cooperation it's really you know it's a glass of Irish whiskey and just kind of sitting there at the typewriter by yourself and seeing where the story goes yeah I'm, I, I admire Rod's ability to, to shift from songwriting into fiction writing, short story writing. I've tried it myself, and I just can't do it. I can write an essay about something that happened, but if I'm trying to create a story, just like, for me, it seems like there's just too many possibilities. It could go so many different ways. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I feel much more comfortable with uh, uh, structure and, uh, or limits. You know, I, I think of songwriting almost as a crossword puzzle. It's like there's a solution to it. There's yeah. really only one word that is the best word or the best phrase for this part of the song. And, and you know, it's, it's, uh, it fits on one page and I can see it all at once. And that's just the way my brain works, I guess. So I'll just, I'll stick to songwriting. Yeah, but that said, your songs collectively are so vivid and so, you know, the, the conversation about, primer gray about turning this car over to your 16 year old kid who wants no part of it because it doesn't have a lot of chrome and it's not polished up and there's no there's no gel coating on the outside and, and all the rest of it or the the busted up knuckles of the worker i mean that's who notices the the busted up knuckles of a worker when you're looking at an end product or when you get your car fixed you don't look at the dirt underneath the fingernails of the, of the mechanic that got you looking at your car and the bill you got to pay. But I can see the people in the bar. I can see the people that have had a rough day. I can see the guy that's hanging rock and his shoulder is on fire from the moment he gets out of bed in your songs. And so I, I, I guess I don't, I, I don't understand how that can't become a novel for you or a short story. Um, 
versus an essay. I, I, I guess because both of your songs, they're they're so. I, I don't know. I mean, guy pulls out a clean shirt and it's already got yesterday's welding holes in it. You know, the, the, these are the the signs. I mean, you can't you can't help but feel the heat of that torch in this guy's t-shirt that's still in the pile in his drawer because they all look the same. You can't help but feel it. Well, I think I think what you're getting what you're getting at now is part of what makes the the this particular co-writing <laughs> ongoing co- co-writing session work is that we bring slightly different things to the table. Like Slade said, he thinks of a song as sort of a puzzle that has mm-hmm. to sort of go, you know, fit together in a certain way. And that might be why I bring songs to him a bit earlier than he would bring them to me cuz I think Slade enjoys the puzzle and and you know trying to figure it out and put it together and for me it's a bit more about um the characters and um you know the 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 language and creating it it's just such a beautiful experience to create a character and a song and and build a song around him and so you know that may be where my proclivities you know are I might be more drawn to storytelling itself, whereas um, Slade has some skills that I that I don't really that I, that I don't have. Um, he's really good at figuring out where stuff goes in a song and the phrasing and um, where to change up. This is a kind of deep. This, this is a sort of deep. I don't know how many people would be interested in this because it's. It's <laughs> we're, we're wading in deep waters now, but but Slade is really skilled at melody and um, chord choices and making things move in different ways and when to when to go left, like exactly when to take a turn musically. Mm-hmm. That the song needs something to happen here, you know. And I'm not as skilled at that, you know. I tend I would tend to send a song uh, to Slade, uh, like say. Uh, uh, I think Rust Belt Fields, I sent it to him and it was just sort of a, it was kind of a Steve Earle ripoff, you know, it was just kind of a, a you know, banging away thing. And when he sent it back, it had, I think it, had, it has almost every chord that's in that key that, it, that it's in. He had, he'd, he'd done something musically to it that was much more sophisticated than what I, what I had sent. And then, then, then the song sort of came alive as opposed to just being a version of something that I like in other people. My recollection is uh, um, I don't think I ever heard music to that, to the early version. I think I, I remember I was at my, uh, my camp in Maine and I didn't have good internet, so maybe I didn't receive the audio, but all I saw was, was the words. And I, I, had a, I had a melody that I actually dreamed. And, you know, like once a year, if I'm lucky, I dream a melody and can get to the tape recorder out of bed and record and, uh... it. And before I forget it, because there's only a few seconds available there. And those words came through email, I think, um, or texts, um, a bunch of verses that you wrote, the first version of Rust Belt Fields. And somehow I just instantly knew that that little snippet of melody could work with that song. And so uh, I guess maybe it was good that if, if I had heard your original melody, I, you know, I may have taken it more in your direction. 
Right, right. It'd be hard to. That is that is one aspect of songwriting is that it is difficult. Is once you start going down down a road, if you go if you go down far enough, it's real. The road gets narrow and it's harder and harder to turn back around and mm-hmm. find you know find a different way to to go where you're trying to go. Um, so would you say that's really interesting? I didn't know that. Would you say one of you tends to fix a song by adding words versus one of you tends to fix a song or edit a song by crossing words out? I think it's in the middle. It's uh, yeah. replacing words. I mean, okay. there's a better word for that. We do that a lot with each other. You know, there's better language we can use to to convey that point. And but part of part of you know to go along with what I was saying just just a second ago, Slade is really good at um, at um, phrasing, at making phrasing sound musical. And you know, I'll send him like I might have a I might have a four verse section that is you know four lines and. The first line rhymes with the third line, or the, you know, it goes A B C B or whatever. And Slade will say, "Well, no, take this just the beginning of this phrase and move it up to the end of the line before it, so that the sec that next line isn't exactly the same meter." So mm. you go, mm-hmm. you know, you might have a, lo- a slightly longer line with a few more syllables, and then a slightly shorter line that's a little more singable. And then a longer line again, and then a shorter line, where I would tend to be more like, you know, just just hammering nails. They're all the same, you know. Just uh, he's really good at that, and uh, we've, uh, you know, it's benefited me a lot. I'm still I'm still learning stuff. I mean, the, the last song we wrote, we, he he did a lot of that, a lot of saying, you know, no, that section, that phrasing isn't right, you know. You, the ear gets bored if you just keep that same phrasing. You want to move this up here and move this down here and start this earlier, hold this note. He's real detailed about that kind of stuff. I, 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 I would say I'm probably a little bit lazier about that stuff. Obsessive, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's cool, though. I mean, after being in this art form for 20-plus years, you're still finding where you need each other's help and trust each other's help to to finish off the product to make it record worthy or audience worthy or you know that your your best fans are going to absolutely dig it if you're enjoying these podcasts you can do two simple things that would help me a lot You can tell your friend your recommendation is valuable to them. You can also go to the website, musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com, click on the donate button, and drop some change in the tip jar. You'd have my thanks. But, um, Rod, over the summer you began your bespoke project. Now, did that sort of give way to this? Was this the project? Was the album Woodsteel, Dust and Dreams, was that a precursor just hadn't yet yet come and so let's let's back up a little bit the bespoke project was 100 people could send you a set list of 10 songs and you would record them beginning to end warts whistles bells gongs melodies yeah. whatever whatever happened happened there was going to be no takeouts unless you know the chainsaw started up next door maybe even that got put in i don't know it's but in did, one okay <laughs> your dad bob i'm sorry but it's in there <laughs> yeah i had to go ask him to shut the chainsaw down <laughs> Try to make a record here. So, which which came first? I mean, did did one sort of were both on the on the um, the drawing board? Did one give make way for the other? Did, 
What was the, the impulse? I, th- I think that we had both thought of this idea just as a loose concept for a couple of, ye- a couple of years now. Um, but just kind of, you know, way on the, you know, on the camp stove, you know, just way back there, just as a concept, just kind of seemed kind of in- sort of interesting. But I, did, I did the bespoke recordings this summer and um, it was a lot of fun and they were, they were really personal and some of them are really funny because, you know, my father would come in at 11 o'clock in the morning when I was recording, he'd just barge into the room and ask <laughs> if I want a beer and, you know, uh, <laughs> so like they, I, I left all that stuff in and so some, some people have... Um, some people have some really special ones that are really interesting. Um, but it was a lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know. You're, I mean, you're making a, a record for for all those people. You and, and a lot of people didn't follow. You know, I laid down the rules, but you know how people are. They'd send their list of, they'd send a list of like 18 songs. I'd be like, oh, shit, this one's going <laughs> to, uh, you know, this one's going to take a while. Um but this, the co-writes project did come out of that. In fact, uh, there was one particular guy, um, guy named Paul Good from Virginia. He said, uh, I want the 10, 10 of your favorite songs that you've written with Slade, because he's a big fan of Slade's too. And uh, I thought, wow, hey, there's somebody came, you know, actually asked for the idea that's been rattling around in my vacant head for the last three years. And I thought, and I wrote back to him, I said, Can, would you mind if I take this idea and actually make this record? He said, no, 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 uh, go ahead, but I want copy number one. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, all right, you'll get copy number one. And uh, then I set off, and I thought I was just going to do it with just me and the guitar, you know, just in garage band or something, have it be really simple, maybe even print the CDs myself, you know. But then it, it grew. I mean, so many people ordered the thing. Uh, that I, 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 you know, I wanted it to be really nice. I, I kind of, the scope of it um, changed, you know. I thought, well, I want to have a really fun cover, you know, so I, so I had to hire a, a designer. And, and the song sounded pretty good with just me and the guitar. You know, they were, I got some good takes. And, um, but it's long, you know. 20, it's actually 26 songs. There's one non-co-write at the end. Uh, it's a song about our garage band when... when when we were kids and so there's 26 songs on there 25 of them were co-writes the last one's just for fun i was going to ask you about that a little bit later on um but the name of the record wood steel dust and dreams that seemed very organic i was sort of exploring that and i've been listening to to the conversation as we're talking now but it seems that it's it's very organic and also very encompassing of of everything you know wood steel the dust that comes from your work, the dreams that led to the project. Um, did I miss the boat? No, you got it exactly right. I mean, I don't think it's a, I'm not sure if it's a brilliant title, but I think it's a lovely title for the, you know, I think it represents the, represents the piece of work, you know, wood. We've been banging on these guitars all, for all these years since we were kids. Steel, you know, the strings. Actually, it's nickel, but... Uh, you know, and cars, and we both had both had a series of uh, uh, questionable, <laughs> questionable dust, uh, Plymouth dusters when we were kids, uh, and into our into our uh, young adulthood too. And uh, dust, you know, sort of, I don't know. It just makes me think of the things that you leave behind, the unanswered dreams. You know, um, what's what's left over. You know, look, makes you. It makes me think about looking back and 
and dreams. It all starts with that dream when you're a kid. Like Slade said, you just, you use the perfect word. It's, it's, intox, it's an intoxicating dream. And there is, there is nothing like the feeling, and this, other people have said this before, but there is nothing like the feeling when you're 14 years old and strapping on an electric guitar and plugging it into an amp and hitting that G chord. There's just no, there's nothing better. And, I got uh, goosebumps when you said that. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> True. I mean, we had, we had uh, Slade and I used to, I'm going off topic a little bit, but we, this is how obsessive we were when we were kids. I mean, we used to go to, to concerts in, you know, when we were just kids. I mean, I saw a Springsteen when, when I was in seventh grade, I think. <laughs> and um, we both went to a lot of concerts when we were in high school. We saw The Who, we saw The Pretenders, you know, we saw all these amazing bands. And, um, you know, um, it's, a, um, it's a thing that gets its hooks into you. And it's a, it's a fire that stays in your belly that's a little bit of a cliche, but it's, it's kind of what it feels like, you know? When you're excited about it, when you've got a great song cooking and you're working on it, or you've got a great show coming up that you know is going to be great, that you know is going to be great, and you're feeling good about your voice, and you know you're feeling strong. It's just an intoxicating thing. It's hard to let go. Really and and it's hard to find hard to find something else that that uh, is anywhere near that good. I think that's we sort of got spoiled with this. Hey, you can you, you can make music and make people happy and and make something really cool and and maybe even make a living at it and. Who would who would want anything more than that or anything different than that, right? True. I think a lot of I think a lot of it too. I mean, you know, Slade and I have very different personalities, and we come from you know slightly different backgrounds, but we we both share this thing of um, you know a lot of people in in rock and roll and a lot of singer songwriters, a lot of people who are in the arts are outsiders. They're people who feel that they don't belong to, and and they. They just have an, a need for expression, you know. And, uh, um, it's just a it's a it's a fire to ex you know. Writers are writing to explain the world to themselves, you know. Uh, unless you're writing beach reads, which neither of us are, and um, so it's a uh, we share that in common, I think, as well. You know, feeling not a part of things as as kids you know it, with the with the you know the rest of the kids it was a very small town it was very provincial uh it was a beautiful town but it was you know if you didn't play football mm -hmm. you know you, <laughs> you you were invisible basically you were invisible and i think we both felt some of that well, Todd and, uh, Snyder's song about uh, Louis Louis and the, the ballad of the, the Kingman, when he talks about Marilyn Manson being nobody, you know, getting yeah. getting his lunch money taken, so he becomes a rock star, and now everybody wants, you know, he's everybody's best friend. He's but sick I, of the quarterback getting all the girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think, um, I was wondering, as I was listening to the record, was there ever, and has there ever been, for either of you, I think, the urge to go back and and rewrite the same song to to fix it, to change it, to add to it, or take something out of it. Um, I mean, clearly your voice has has changed, your your guitar playing has changed over time. It's evolved, but was the impetus to to try and recreate the songs? Was the impetus to revisit them, uh, rework them, redo them? What was oh for this particular record? Yeah, for this particular um, project. 
I mean, it was, and I, has there ever been, I think, um, for you too, Slade, has, has there ever been a dream or a desire to go back and remake a record? And what really kind of comes to mind is uh, Sean Colvin's Steady On, where she took a record that she made 30 years later and, and reworked it, but worked it fast, but did make some, some changes, some things that she wanted to, to fix. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the, the, you know, one of the things that I, uh, one of the walls that I smacked into when I started the project, I thought it sounded really easy in my head because I, most of the songs we've both released, not not all of them, you know, so I knew there'd be a, f a few, but then there were these older songs that only Slate had released and, um, and uh, they, they were daunting to tackle. Um, some of them were, you know, not amateurish, but they were, you know, they were, they were before we, we really started, mm -hmm. you know, sh had sharpened our tools. And so they were, they were good songs. I was surprised at how good they were. And, and some of them have uh, amazing lines. There were a couple of lines that I ran across that were, that were, I just thought, who the hell wrote this one? I mean, you know, it was, it was happy. It was, it was nice. Um, there were a couple that um, Slade had done versions of with, with a band um, that I had really had no way of kind of approaching in that way, you know, because it, it was just me and the acoustic guitar on the initial tracks. And so a few of them I, I really, really reworked. They're almost completely different songs. There's a song called Warden's Hotel um, that's, um, uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> I think there's eight lines in the song because I think the verse is repeated twice and or maybe there's two ver three verses and one of them's repeated twice and and a chorus and um Slade ver Slade's version was was really big and rocking like really really rocking like only the you know that time period that time period of sort of roots rock you know when you had uh, it's a very particular uh period of time but mm -hmm. uh and um I mean it's crazy rock and it sounded great uh, but I just couldn't, I didn't know how to approach it with the acoustic guitar. And I just thought, I'm just going to have to completely unravel this thing and find a different, completely different way to, to do it. So I did that. I tuned to open C and I sort of made it a blues and um, uh, made it really slow. And um, uh, which sort of helped, I think, in a way, because it stretched out the verses a little bit. <laughs> uh I, I was wondering how you were going to handle that song because I, oh, I wouldn't man. know what to do with it. That's that it, it it presents itself as something that no one it just doesn't fit into my body of work at all as as recorded thirty years ago. I mean, it sounds great. It still sounds it sounds great, but it does sound like it's from that time. You know, mm. I can't I can't remember. I'm trying to think of the bands. You know that were. We were trying to be Aerosmith, I think. It's just really loud, over-the-top, <laughs> screaming guitars and big drums. Yeah, it's I can't huge. see you guys as the Aerosmith icon. No. I can see maybe you know, John Cougar Mellencamp or Bruce Springsteen <laughs> or some of the, you know, we got to listen to the words. And, you know, the, I, I don't know. I, that's If I think of the two of you in a rock band, I'm not coming up with Aerosmith. So it's really kind of an interesting revelation. Well, that was a really great, that was a great band that Slade had at the time that he recorded that. Um, and I don't remember much about, right, it was so long ago, I don't remember much about writing that song. I don't, you know, we don't, I say, I say this all the time, but we generally don't keep track. So I have a hard time remembering who wrote what, you know, after, after a few years. There are some that I remember, you know, you know, like the, the uh, I'm bone dry, but I can always bleed line that always gets me in. Uh, 
you know, and that's Slade's line, and I'll I'll never forget it because it was so it was so perfect for the song. It was exactly what I wanted for the song. So it's <laughs> it's kind of a funny way to do things. It's mm-hmm. sort of like handing the tools to somebody else. You know, hey Slade, <laughs> the you know uh, the radiator's got to come out. Yeah, that's what you know. Hand him the tools, and he takes the radiator out and puts a new one in. Send or a flywheel gives, on a gives 72 me the car, Duster. Gives me the car back. Yeah. Hey, I got my car back. <laughs> well, it's fixed. Let's uh, let's look at the uh, the five songs. What's going to happen to those songs? The new ones? Are they going to be released? Are they going to be shared? Are there, is there a specific plan for those ones that have not yet made it to to disc? Well, they're on this disc. I mean, those right. those five are songs that Slade recorded. I think there were five. There might be six. There is those are songs that Slade recorded that I never recorded. Uh, Warden's Hotel, Jenny's All Right, um, Beyond Love, which I don't think I contributed much to. I I, uh, I have a hard. I really have no memory of contributing anything, honestly. So I'm not sure why my name is by the credits, but it is. So, so I, I put well, it on the record. I don't think Ken shows up on any of your records either. Junkyard um, is the other one. And Sparrow um, and Sparrow is brand new. Yeah, there might be there might be one more, but uh, not on my Double list. crossed heart. Is that... Oh, double crossed heart. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. That was yeah. on my list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is actually a. Uh, uh, I was surprised by that song. I could really get behind that song. Still, I mean, it's uh, uh, like it, it felt like a Bob Seger song to me when I <laughs> when I when I revisited it. Something about the way the, the story unfolds, you know. It's like well, let's go back Ma- to the Main question. Street or Hollywood Nights. Would your business, firm, company, project, whatever, like to meet other cool people like yourself? Maybe you'd like to be a sponsor of the programming. Working with people that think like you or share common interests is the key to getting things done. You can write to me at the website, musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. Let's, let's go back to the, uh, the song, the question that was asked and, and deliberately not answered. Is there a song that either of you have w- written um, that you wish the other, or is there a song that you wish you had written that the other one wrote. Yeah, One Good Year, I think is one of Slade's finest pieces of writing. And uh, uh, you wrote that by yourself, right? No, I did have some help on that. I, oh, it's, the song had a, an interesting provenance. I, I wrote a version and uh, it was very pedestrian. It, you know, it, and I, I shared it with a guy named Steve Brooks in Austin. Oh yeah, Steve. Yeah. And, and we worked on it in person one day, and he, he's I can't remember exactly what he did, but he he changed its trajectory trajectory somehow, and I knew that we were on track. And then I brought it home and finished it because he sort of set the new path, and I was able to finish it on my own. But he was instrumental in in making that one happen. I I think in terms, Rod and I, we talked about the competition earlier, and it. It, and it's a very healthy sort of inspirational competition and, and, and our careers have kind of gone back and forth. Like I remember when he, when he had his first original band before I had an original band and I was so enthralled with Big Rain, was that the name of the band? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I was in a cover band still, not writing yet, and Rod had a, a band of original music and that was just really inspiring to me. Um, and, um, and like his, his record, Girl from Arkansas, I just remember, 
I got a copy of that CD. I put it in my laptop, listened on headphones, and from the very first note, I just went, ah, wow, this is... I just knew it was a perfect record somehow. The sound was just fantastic, and that, that inspired me actually so much, the sound of that record and, and just the whole record itself, that my next record, I had Rod produce it for me. So uh, um, I'm surprised... I'm surprised more people haven't hired Ron to produce because he did a fantastic job on the unsung record, which is all songs by a friend of mine, my last record out on the Rounder label. All songs by friends of mine and Rod produced in Nashville, and, and it's a beautiful sounding record. It is a beautiful record. Yeah, I mean, recording is, I, I, I like producing because, like, you're not, you're not the guy in the hut seat, you know? <laughs> um, um, I've worked with a couple other people, but, you know, nobody at the level. Uh, that Slade's at, and um, um, I, I I love the process, and I like Slade was saying earlier. Um, I do enjoy analyzing things and pulling them apart and seeing you know why it works or, or why it doesn't. Um, and so I, but you know, I might not be as as instinctively or uh, as skillful musically as Slade, Slade is. Um, and I'm not not nearly the singer that he is as as well, so I'm kind of limited there. I, I do kind of have a, an ability to to pull things apart and sort of figure out why they work or why they don't work or what's happening. And I have a very specific concept about producing. I I I have you know other people produce my records, but I I'm I'm definitely part of that team that's making those decisions. You know. And it's, uh, it's almost, it's very geeky. This is a very geeky thing, but I think of production as like, you've got this window right here, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got a guitar, you've got a, you've got a vocal, each of those things can be really big in the mix. Now, everything you add into that makes those other two things smaller. So mm. you have to be very careful as you go along, because the more things you add, the smaller each thing gets. And, uh, that's sort of my concept. And, um, so it depends on what kind of record you want to make. You know, you can have the drums be really big, but you're going to push that's pushing the vocal back. You know, it's not going to be lyric centered, and uh, unless unless your drum beat is maybe maybe you want to go halftime on the drum beat. See, I love thinking about. I love. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm excited just talking yeah. about it. I love thinking about this. Stuff. But it's it's a whole different approach because you you see you see the whole as finite. Whereas somebody else might see the whole as infinite, so we don't have to make something smaller. We just make everything bigger. And your feeling is no, this is not about making it bigger. It's about staying within the box. And what can we do to make that box right? Maybe we need a new box. I don't know, but it's going to fit in a box. And once we've started out with the box, maybe there's a little bit of latitude. But it's it's as opposed to just it's easier just to go out and get a big new box, get a bigger one. But you you feel that you've got something that's anything you add is going to take away from something else. So it's got a compliment. It's got to fit in. Yeah. Well, it pushes the other things aside, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, uh, that's just my concept. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I'm right. It's just kind of how I hear things. It's kind of, you know, you listen to those old Rolling Stones records and you listen to all the stuff that's going on and the percussion and the whole band playing and, you know, five, six guitars playing away. And if you really listen to it, a lot of times you can't even tell what Mick is singing because his voice is so it's part it's just part of all the stuff that's going on you know so it, for me philosophically you you really can't do that with a recording you you have to make decisions and if you want 
if you want that vocal to be right right out front and really intelligible, you've got to limit what you what you add, um, unless you want it to just be another instrument, which is mm-hmm. which is completely valid. You know, it's just a matter of what kind of record you want to make. Uh, all topics for perhaps another interview, but I got a <laughs> final question for you, and that is. Um, before we say thanks and farewell and I get on my knees and beg for a couple of songs, not the 30 that we originally agreed to, mind you, but just a couple of few, um, what, would you say that your, your did or does your mother's, um, did they like your music? I mean, because the name of my program is Music My Mother Would Not Like. Did your parents like your music? And at what point did they begin to endorse it and then maybe finally champion it? Or maybe they still tell you, go get a real job. I don't know. <laughs> Slade, you go. Um, let's see. Well, um, my dad played guitar around the house for fun and loved it. And, uh, so when he saw me doing music in high school, I think he thought it was a kick. But when I said, like I alluded to earlier, when I was kind of thinking, gee, mom, dad, I I don't think I need to go to college. I think I just want to be a musician. Of course, that horrified them (laughs) and they convinced me to go to college and I'm glad I did. And, um, after college, it was like, okay, you know, obviously you can't make a living as a musician. Because I did. I, I got a philosophy degree. And uh, <laughs> so I was making $4 an hour printing pictures in a darkroom with my philosophy degree. Uh, and then I started doing music. And before long, I was doing music as a living, but very, very meager living. And so, for to, yeah, it's been through a lot. It, it, it's um, what I'm trying to say. Uh, just last year I was telling my mom that I was getting burned out on touring and she brought in the, well, you know, there's other things you can do, Slate. So it hasn't completely gone away. <laughs> okay, so we've not elevated mom up to, to championing your, your stuff yet, but she's she endorsing, is. but not she championing. Saw, she saw my show last night and gave a rave review. So she paid for the ticket and saw a, a, a streaming show last night at Blue Rock in Texas. And gave a rave review, so she's still a fan and still proud. And and my dad was proud too. He's passed away now, but he was very happy to see me get some success. But in the back of their minds, medical schools never too late for medical school, Slade. <laughs> Just saying, right? <laughs> Slade's mom is so proud of him. I've got a good. I'll do a really quick story. Slade, Slade brought me up to Maine, and I opened a show for him somewhere up near where his mom lives and so there were a lot of relatives and a lot of you know friends from the, the town and stuff and I did my opening set I played for about you know 25 or 30 minutes and I did a pretty pretty good job and I had, I had some I was pretty funny that night so I, I felt good about the set you know I felt like I'd done a good job and felt like I'd done a good job you know uh, getting the people ready for Slade and being supportive of my buddy and stuff and I walked off stage and put down my guitar and Slade's mother came running up to me, and I hadn't seen her in a long time. And I thought, you know, oh, she's going to tell me how proud she was of me and what a great job I did. And, and and she walked up to me and she said, "Can you, can you just believe Slade? Can you just?" Can you just? <laughs> I just walked off stage, and she wanted me to to have a conversation about how proud she was of Slade, the, the huge crowd. You know, there were there were a lot of people there. I just. It just always stayed with me. I thought it was funny. So charming. <laughs> My own parents had the same fears as Slade's parents. You know, they they didn't understand it. Um, 
they didn't understand it. They didn't get it. They didn't know that it was a thing that you could make a living at. They didn't, you know, they had no experience. And so my, um, not respect, but my, my willing, willingness to listen to what they were saying about it uh, went out the window really early because I just thought, well, you, you don't know anything about it. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, my mom ended up being, you know, very, very, very proud of, uh, of, the, of the work. And I think that they were both more amazed that I never gave up. Because <laughs> I think a lot, you know, people sort of told me, you know, um, you know, early on people told me that I could write, but that I, I probably would not be a singer, you know. And um, I think they felt that way until I started making records. And then, you know, over the years, they just kind of marveled that I kept going, you know. And uh, my father always says, how long are you going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my mom passed away in April. And, um, uh, yeah, she had, uh, she had her every Sunday she would go through the CDs and listen to one or two of the CDs, one, one or two of my albums. And uh, I, think she was, I think she was very proud. She was proud of the hard work that I put in. Sure. As much as, as, much as the music, you know. Well, I've said that if I, I think that if I had any aptitude or ability to have been a musician at about the times you guys started out, I don't think I'd still be alive today. I think that I would have um, embraced the lifestyle a little bit too much rather than the work necessary um, to maintain the life of, as a musician. So I think, the, I think the lifestyle would have been my demise um, we don't have to worry about that because I have no talent, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> so it's really hey, simple. Ne- hey, neither did I, Bruce. So <laughs> that's yeah, a really that's a really salient point, though, because this, you know, there are a lot of things about doing this for a living that are you sacrifice a lot to do to do this. You really do, and I don't I don't mean that to sound dramatic, but uh, you you give up a lot to to spend your life doing this, and um, um, uh, you know, it's not it's not for the easily broken and a lot of people think that they want to do this for a living because they like the idea of it uh but the reality of it is much different than what it looks like when you're at a show and just watching somebody on stage that's not the work that's the hour and a half of that's the hour and a half of fun that came from hundreds thousands of hours of hard boring slogging through the stuff that you don't want to do booking yourself all the stuff that you got to be do you got to be willing to do all the stuff that you don't want to do so that you can have that 90 minutes on stage and a lot of people don't you know they just they get in but and they find out that it's something very very different and that's fine you know it's not worth the sacrifice for everybody but it depends how how hot your coals are well, when you look at um, gatherings and folk folk festivals, folk conferences, there's not a lot of people our age on stage. There's a lot of people half our age <laughs> on stage. And it's not just because of mortality. It's because they don't have the stomach, the fortitude, the ability, um, and really, I think, the, the thickness of their skin to be able to, to take the rejection, to take the complications, to, to say, no, this is my style. This is, this is me. This is what I am. I am not going to... Um, figure out how I can make my voice a little higher, a little lower, a little more melodic. This is this is what I am, and you look at all the greats that have come up in the in the in the industry. I mean, sure, that that's really the big differentiation I think between pop music and classical music, and and things that have absolutely withstood the test of time 
that those musicians are different. There's a different sound to their voice, but it's, it's distinctive. And I think for a lot of a lot of people, you love them or you hate them. And there's there's nothing objective about one or the other. It's just you're in or you're out. You can either take this type of voice and see it. I can't listen to Tom Waits, brilliant songwriter, musician. <laughs> I, I can't. He breaks my heart every time he opens his mouth to sing a note. I think that he's singing the very very last song he's going to sing for the rest of his life. He's going to keel over and die right then, right there. And I can't I can't bear. That responsibility to have heard his last song, so I can't listen to any of it. And yet, and, and no, really, I mean, kidding aside. But then there's other things that, um, that 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 the uniqueness of the sound is so important that it, it draws you back. Um, and then there's also songs that you really need to build a callousness towards. I think Slade, the first time I interviewed you, I said I used to have to play Breakfast in Hell very early in the program and very early in the set, and I finally graduated. To it can be the first, second, third, fourth, tenth, whatever in the set, and I don't got to go get a box of Kleenex. You know, I'm not pulling for for the persona because um, I know what's going to happen to him at the end. But it took a long time not to start crying every time, you know, he gets laid out. That's and, mm. and uh, you know the great Missouri River song. Um, the, the, there are certain songs that just, no matter how many times you hear them, they grab you. And you know, I, I think that. This album is really a fantastic compendium, and I can't wait to get my copy. Maybe I'm keeping you from the post, but I'm looking forward to getting my copy and really sitting down and touching it and reading the book and getting past the liner notes. And, you know, you said earlier about the non-distribution on um, digital platforms, and I respect that um, for, for lots of reasons. But what I miss the most on the digital platform is the ability to look at the liner notes. All you get is the list of songs and the publishing company, the year it was published and the name of the record, maybe the record cover. That's all you get. You don't get you don't get to touch it. You don't get to it's not yeah. yours. It's everybody's and, and you rent it and when, when the, the platform and the parent company decides it's done, it's over. There's nothing you can do about it. But if I own it, if I hold it, if it's mine I can, I can listen to it whenever I want. I can buy it. I can sell it. I can trade it. I can lend it. I can get it back. I can forget about it for a while. These are all things that I get to do. Um, but I get to read the notes, and that's what I'm really looking forward to. And I, I, I can't wait to read the, the, the book that, that, that accompanies this and see the, the end product. And so um, I want to thank you both for... Uh, You're welcome. I really appreciate it. Uh, this was a wonderful, in-depth and uh, thoughtful conversation and uh, they're not always like this <laughs> <laughs> that's right some, some are better than others but no anyway it, it's it's really um, just <clears throat> you know for you guys to go on stage that's me on radio that's what that's what I've I've sought sure. out my entire life so I know not what that's like but I know that it's I know the similarities perhaps to flipping the switch and now it's just me. Now it's just you. That's it. It's us. Um, or when you're on stage, it's it's your show. You control the songs. You control the flow. You try to 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 um, add to the to the to the audience experience by uh, song, stories, background information, joke, a levity. Maybe the song, the next song is not going to work. You've got that latitude, as I feel I do on radio. So in that sense, it's similar. But yours is the ability. Oh, yeah. Any monkey can do. <laughs> what we do so anyway bravo and and thank you again so much for that
beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you both so much. This great record, Wood Steel, Dust and Dreams, uh, Picot, Slade Cleaves. Thank you. Uh, now I can get some sleep. Thank you, Bruce. It was Thanks, really Bruce. great. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to see Love you, old that. buddy. Good to see you, man. All right. Can't wait to hear the record. I hope you'll be proud. I think I, I think I did us. I think I did us both proud. We you sending we them out tomorrow? Uh, no, um, they should be shipping to me today. Oh, okay. Uh, that, to yeah, that was the confusion yeah. about that. Yeah, they should be yeah. shipping out to me today. So, um, awesome. Um, <laughs> crossing <laughs> my fingers. You're okay, a lot so of that's that pretty much the way I want this thing to go. Are we ready to start? <laughs> <laughs> this in-depth conversation with Rod Picot and Slade Cleaves about Rod's new album, Wood, Steel, Dust, and Dreams. You can get more information about the artists, check out their merch table, and check out their tour schedules, both in-person and virtual, on their websites, rodpicot.com and sladecleaves.com. You can join their mailing lists and get up-to-date info on these greats. More information about the podcast series, my radio shows, and streamed live concerts can be found at musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. My thanks to Rod and Slade for agreeing to grant me this interview and to Adam Dawson of Broken Jukebox Media for his assistance with pitching the idea and helping to line up the pieces that made this possible. And finally, to Louise Baker with Day of Interview Technical Assistance and Advice. This was the fourth episode of the podcast series, Conversation at Music My Mother Would Not Like. Again, you can get more information about the weekly radio shows and the weekly stream series at musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. My big thanks to our sponsors, hearitthere.com and undiscoveredmusic.net. I'm Bruce Swan, and thanks for listening. My guest next time will be industry expert Brad Rayleigh of Black Oak Artists, a booking agency for some of the finest musicians on the planet. So until next time, don't take any wooden nickels, and so long for now. Silence in the air